Greetings, welcome to the dividing line on a, uh, I guess it's Monday. Uh, I think it's Monday. Yes, we had the kids over last night for dinner. That means it's Monday. Because <laughs> we've, uh, uh, Apologia has been meeting on the other side of the planet from its normal location. And so real close to where I live. And so uh, it's been really neat over the past month or so uh, that on Sundays after church, because, of course, we meet in the afternoon, we've been able to have dinner with the whole family. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, much, much enjoyment. Um, and then I guess, I guess last night I, I got online after everybody left and, and my daughter had uh, uh, tweeted and Facebooked that – and I remember uh, I was I was sitting in front of him. I sit on the front row because I have to go up and do stuff. Um, and at some point during the uh, the service, I, I noticed that one of the grandkids was doing something that he and there's only one of them um, shouldn't be doing. It wasn't anything terrible. It's just what boys do. Um, but uh, I just cleared my throat and got his attention <clears throat> like that. And uh, Summer tweets that she heard me clear my throat, and she sat up like, what am I doing wrong? <laughs> That's funny. Uh, she saw what it was, and, uh, and, uh, but, it, but she decided she better behave better, too. <laughs> I love it. Anyway, <clears throat> thanks for uh, uh, very appreciative of um, the fact that I was gone for a few days. And yet uh, the, the program continued on. Uh, Rich uh, managed to bring in some uh, – I'm not sure. I was, a little, I was a little put off because it sort of sounded to me like most people just wanted me to go away and just bring the new guy in, you know. Uh, he's, you know he's a lot younger and, and stuff like that and, uh, you know, has hair and things like that. Yeah, so, you know, what can I say? Um, you got to be careful when you bring those uh, those. Look what look what happened to um, uh, you know with, when Jay Leno took over the night. Did did that guy really die? I mean, we don't know. Uh, it's 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 hard to say. Anyway, uh, so appreciate uh, that. I listened to the program as I was uh, driving um, somewhere uh, on my travels, and um, saw a lot of good positive feedback uh, concerning. Uh, the issues that were raised, and it's obviously a perspective that isn't nearly as uh, popular and spoken of. I haven't even spoken of it as much because I'm in the middle of it, uh, because uh, the church where I'm one of the elders has not stopped meeting, uh, even for a single week during all of this. Um, and I don't mean drive-ins or anything else. We have We have met in a in a worship center and uh, had the Lord's Supper, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, that that perspective is a minority perspective, and hence uh, it doesn't get heard quite nearly as much. But um, anyway, appreciate the fact that uh, the program continued on, and um, uh, but we did we did sort of drop drop the amount of programming last week, and and um, I had one guy at church. There was actually a guy from Oregon who flew to Phoenix um, just to attend our church and get a haircut and flew back today. Uh, that's, how, that's how bad it is in Oregon, uh, that you would fly to Phoenix to get a haircut, go to church, and then go back. Um, wow. 
So there you go. As I just said on Twitter, uh, stuck in a blue state with a commie governor. Can't even peek outside without getting reported for SDV, social distancing violation. Then take heart, fire up your browser, and join us on the dividing line right now. <laughs> so so uh, those, those of you who were left without hours and hours and hours of, uh, of programming last week, we're sorry about that. Uh, we'll, we'll try to do a little bit better this week and, uh, and keep, you, keep you company, uh, keep you edified. And the most edifying thing I can do... <laughs> I can do is to start off with um, uh, the the lady who works at the White House. Well, she goes to the White House a lot. She, I don't I don't know that she's actually paid anything. I hope not. Um, I really really hope not. But um, Phil Johnson just posted. Now I I could have a little debate with Phil about the context in which he put I. I, I do find the Paula Whites of the world incredibly um, damaging to Christian witness, especially in the secular culture, where the secular culture is not going to differentiate between Paula White and myself, even though the Grand Canyon between us is, is real. Uh, they're not going to make that differentiation. And so there is a tremendous damage done to the Christian witness by people like Paula White in this entire spectrum of zaniness. Um, uh, but I don't think that's. Um, but I would I would put the emphasis definitely on the government, um, the massive lurch to the left that has taken place over uh, the past couple of months uh, now, uh, as uh, being of greater immediate import uh, because we've been free to expose and refute Paula White for a long time. Uh, let this keep going left, and we, we're not going to have a voice to refute anything. Now, she's not going to have a voice to be raising money, so there you go. Uh, some of the first people that are going to disappear will be these folks. No two ways about it. Um, did you just get a spike? No. Oh. Well, yeah, my UPS in here popped. So, huh? Uh, that might mean there's it's time for this one to go, too. But... Uh, and anyway, when I hear UPS is popping, it's like, mm, okay, always good to good to know we're, we're still. You, you got backup batteries, good. That's 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 good. Uh, got to back up the backup. That's true. That's true. Um, anyway, I remember when UPSs first came out because I mean, what do we need them for? You know, but then it's like, hey, you just lost all that work you had just been. You know, you just lost last hours worth of work because you forgot to hit save. This is before programs had auto save in them. Believe it or not, there was a day before autosave, um, and I am one of many, many of the ancient world um, who worked and worked and worked and typed and typed and typed, and then the lights flashed, and it all just went goodbye, and <laughs> you get to start all over again. Yeah, yeah, I remember those days. Anyways, uh, let's get back to our edification here. Here is um, uh, Paula White. Um, this is the single greatest garage band name ever. Paula White and the Bees. Paula White and the Bees. I don't know where this came from. Um, I don't hear any response, so I get the feeling this is to an empty room. And so maybe she's just trying to get herself all excited. I don't know. Uh, or she's trying to get bees excited. I, I I don't know about that either. But 
Um, I, and you know, she's actually, she's actually telling the truth. Um, the, the mechanisms of communication amongst bees, fascinating, absolutely fascinating. I, defies any kind of evolutionary explanation. Oh, don't, don't get me wrong. I know they have their explanations, but it demonstrates just how far they're willing to go. Um, to explain away clearly created behavior, intelligent design. Did you see that video of the killer hornet that that went into the Japanese beehive and they cooked it? <laughs> Excuse me, but how did Japanese bees know that their body temperatures can be two degrees centigrade above the killer hornet so that they all jump on him and start doing jumping jacks or whatever and cook him. I mean, that is just fascinating. Just, wow. That is really cool. Um, but anyway, bees, bees are cool. Uh, or in that case, hot. <laughs> uh, bees, bees are neat. And the queen bee does communicate with her wings. And believe it or not, it, uh, um, the, the speed at which she moves her wings and how she moves them and stuff is all a language. I mean, it's fascinating. It, it really makes you realize, wow, uh, this is incredible stuff. Um, so there's a good side to it. So what she's saying is true. But, well, you just got to watch. So, so here's, here's Paula White. Yes, the Paula White, White House Paula White. And notice she will throw in a reference to COVID just for the fun of it at the end, uh, which I don't know why she's bothering because her declaring an end to COVID hasn't ended COVID. But anyways, here's, here's Paula White and the bees. The leader of the bee family is always a female known as a queen bee. She's the only female that is fertile. Deborah, you're a queen bee. Come on. But here's what's so important. She is known for her dance. She is known for her dance. And it's not like some cute little, you know, this kind of dance. It's not that this kind of dance. She's known for her dance because when she gets ready to notify in the hive of a new source of food, she will perform a dance by vibrating her wings. Her wings start going into this like almost uncontrollable vibration and the moving of her body around. And the dance co- starts to communicate how far and in what direction the food is. She's the queen bee. And it's uphill against the wind. It will require more energy. So what she starts doing at the amount of food, there is great dance. The dance will last longer and it'll be more enthusiastic. So what she starts doing, the longer the dance, the more bee she gets aroused. So Queen Bee starts going into this frenzy and she starts going around and around and around and she goes into vibrations until all the bees get activated and all the bees start going forth and she leads the way by stirring something up. I dare you, Deborah. Come on, stir it up right now in the name of Jesus. Stir up faith in others. Stir it up. Do you think I was ashamed to stand on the lawn of the White House in front of the president, the vice president, the floatus, the nation, the press and declare in the name of Jesus I declare right now an end to this COVID-19 
mean? What good am I if I pray some cute little prayer? What good am I if I have some fancy little poem or just talk about the problem? Everybody knows the problem, but who's going to come forth with the solution? Stir them up. Stir them up. Come on, Deborah. Stir them up right now. Stir them up. There's a whole lot of food. There's revelation. Some people are eating ass's head and dove's dung. Come on. Where's my Deborah? Where's my Deborah? Yeah, you put that microphone down, boy. You just put that microphone down. Well, I'm edified. I don't know about anybody else. Uh, I'm I'm edified. Um, I think she's actually older than we are. I'm not sure about that, but I I, I think she might actually be older than us. Um, I, I don't know. What can you even start to say? I, 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 don't, I don't know what to say. I, I just, I've told the story many, many times. It's probably been 15, 20 years ago that she was on uh, TBN and she was in, she used, she had a word of knowledge based on like the 69th Psalm that you're supposed to give $69, you know? That was probably the last time I had... I think it was probably the last time I even had a TV that could tune to Channel 21 uh, that long ago. And it was just like, really? Okay. All right. Well, there you go. Paula White and the Bees, though, that you got to admit, that is probably one of the best garage band names that has, has, ever, has ever been devised. So that was, that was, it had some buzz. Yeah, had some buzz to it. Thanks. Appreciate that. Okay, all right. Um, not going to get into um, a lot of the stuff that has been going on the past number of days uh, as far as uh, cultural developments. We'll have plenty of time to, to be doing uh, all of that as, as time goes by. Um, I'll, I'll just say this. It is, um, uh, it is satisfying to see uh, things that we've been saying, that I've been saying, expressing concern about for many weeks, uh, becoming mainstream. Uh, Major news organizations finally getting online and going, huh, well, this could be a concern, and it was a concern a long time ago. When we expressed it, we had people who were former friends saying we were jumping sharks and wearing tinfoil hats and things like that. And, you know, now that it's becoming mainstream, um, I'm not expecting any apologies or, well, okay, but it it is somewhat um, satisfying on that end. But that doesn't change the fact that um, there are some real difficult days ahead. There's no choice about it. And it does seem to me, I'll just, I saw uh, one real positive thing this morning. I had seen this uh, gym that was going to be opening. And they they rearranged everything and uh, all the equipment was six feet apart, which it's sort of like I had to fly this past uh, week. And you have to wear face masks. Stupidest thing on the planet. Sorry, it's the stupidest thing on the planet. 
you're in a sealed tube with air being recirculated. Um, unless you're wearing a properly fitted medical grade N95 mask, which will cause you headaches, uh, lower your your uh, uh, blood oxygen, and increase your carbon dioxide in your bloodstream, um, and needs to be replaced every few hours. Um, what they would allow you to get on with was a complete joke. You could have a bandana. You could you could be. They've had a fifty percent increase in armed robberies in uh, in L.A. Uh, because everyone wears bandanas. Once you run outside, you look like everybody else. Hey. Couldn't see that one coming, huh? No. Um, but there are so many papers about the foolishness of this. It is all virtue signaling. Now, if you are scared, if you're frightened out of your mind, or if you're just, you've just really think this, or if you have a particular condition that might make you assess, especially susceptible, then wear a face mask. Just get the right one. And you're going to have to bring more than one. You're going to have to get one that seals. You're going to have to wear it right. Um, you're going to have to uh, replace it. You're, you're going to have to. You're going to have to put out that effort. I have no problem with you doing that. Go for it. But why make me do it? And especially why put up with the fact that I, I had this this thing on um, that that fit all right, but. It's not doing anybody any good. It's not, it's not protecting me from anything. It's not protecting anyone else from anything. It is, we're all in this together. Let's, it, is, it is the mindset that has developed over the past 15, 20 years that doing something has to be better than doing nothing. No, sometimes doing something is the dumbest thing you can do. Sometimes doing nothing is the best thing you can do. And in this situation, in a plane in a plane where they're recirculating the air <laughs> and and you're not enforcing a strict kind of mask which would make half the people sick by the time they got where they're going anyways uh, it's just pure panic it's just it's just loss of i mean the the, the current i'm sorry i wasn't going to do this but really quickly the current may 2020 cdc uh, medical Journal has an article that basically says that outside of medical contexts, this kind of face mask hysteria is worthless. The CDC. Now, you know that this paper was, was already plot, had already been designated for publishing months ago, and I can't believe they didn't pull it because it says the exact opposite of what the CDC is now saying. But I, I have a page full of articles on this very subject in reputable research magazines. But nobody cares um, because, hey, it's um, – did you just cough? Uh, he just coughed in the other room, and he's not wearing a mask, so I'm, I'm, I'm dead. No, I'm actually not. Uh, I have this thing called an immune system. It's an amazing thing, and it's, it's great. It's wonderful. It's, it's awesome. Anyway, uh, I look forward to the day when that ends. And, you know, I can go into my little the little restaurant that I went by today on the way in and picked up my food. I can go in and sit down again. But I do not find it appetizing 
that the servers look like nurses. Oh, yeah, they've all, they all have to have masks on. They all have to have masks on. So, you know, people are talking about, well, we're opening up. Well, if you call that opening up, I suppose. Um, but, you know, you, you can only have a certain number of people in the room, and then the servers look like you have a disease or are the disease. Yeah, we're all in this together, comrade. That's right. It is, uh, uh, es ist für eure Sicherheit. Yeah, it is for your safety. <clears throat> okay. Oh, I need to keep this in because I'm okay. All right. So, what was I going to do today? Um, this morning, uh, I have been in contact over the past number of weeks with uh, a couple guys on Facebook who are likewise working on the Ken, the Ken Wilson problem. <laughs> and their motivations are a little bit different than mine. Um, they are not uh, Calvinists like me. They're At least one of them is Lutheran. I'm not sure what the other one is. I assume probably. Uh, but we all have a deep uh, aversion to the utter misrepresentation and abuse of church history. And uh, hence... When I picked up the popular Ken Wilson book, uh, before long, I heard from one of these two gentlemen, I've mentioned his name before, um, their focus is primarily on the element of Wilson's thesis. And don't, don't tune out. You're going to enjoy this. We're going to be going into a biblical text. Um, and I just realized I didn't need to pull this up yet. I need to actually have the... Uh, this in front of me for the moment. Um, their primary focus is upon what Wilson asserts was the motivation for uh, Augustine to go back to Manichaeism and Gnosticism and Stoicism and Neoplatonism and uh, and basically say he got all these ideas from these other sources. that He could never have gotten them from the Bible, because we know the Bible doesn't teach any of that stuff. So i got to look for something else. And uh, they've been primarily focused on this assertion that because of his battle with the Pelagians, um, that he developed, for the first time, looked at John 3, 5, and developed the whole concept of baptismal regeneration, even though people have been doing infant baptism now for, you know, 150, 200 years. Um, they didn't know why they were doing it. And as soon as I heard that, I'm like, what? John 3, 5 was used that way by lots of folks before Augustine. What, what, what is he talking about? So their focus has been upon baptism, faith as a gift, um, issues like that, where I've been more focused upon this uh, idea that there is such a thing as as Stoic, Gnostic, Neoplatonistic, Manichaean dupied, um, and taking that apart from numerous numerous perspectives. So we sort of had differing emphases in our in our work. But uh, this morning they mentioned an assertion that I was like, "What are they talking about?" Start talking about Ken Wilson saying that Augustine actually developed 
what would be the standard scholarly interpretation of James chapter 2 today in regards to repentance and things like that. And I'm like, what? I haven't, I haven't seen that. What, what, what are you guys talking about? So they, they addressed, they directed me to a video that we're going to look at. And I was, um, well, it's certainly confirmed for me that we need to remember that Ken Wilson teaches at one of the few anti-lordship free grace seminaries. And this is a extreme minority view, um, extremely problematic, in its fullest form, I would say heretical, that denies the centrality of repentance. Um, if you want to go back to, what was it, 2000, for some reason 2004 is in my thinking, um, when I um, debated the subject of Lordship Salvation. It was probably about 16 years ago. If you want to sort of see what some of the issues are, uh, the fact that these guys actually think they're defending sola fide, even though the actual people who enunciated sola fide and defended sola fide in the Reformation would not have recognized their construction of it at all. Robert Wilkins was the uh, guy that I debated. Um, see, I'm, I'm, that's on YouTube, isn't it? Okay, good. Um, so, could that possibly influence something? Well, I discovered that in this interview, or in this podcast, that Dr. Wilson has written an article that's going to be published in SBL, well, actually JBL, which is the journal of the SBL. Um, I'm sorry, 2005? Okay, so a long time ago, um, where he argues that the modern understanding of James 2, guess, guess who's to blame for it? Augustine. Who else? Um, I wrote, I don't know how many, was it 34 pages in The God Who Justifies on James 2? I don't think I ever quoted Augustine, but... I guess I just must have been repeating whatever he said anyways, because none of us ever do any original exegetical work anymore. Um, it's just, we just all, ever since Augustine, we just all repeat Augustine, even though I had never read Augustine on James 2. But anyways, he actually goes back to an invalid argument that Augustine makes against the Donatists uh, as to why they weren't truly Christians, which is interesting because, again, what was the Reformation? It was the inwardly considered was just the victory of Augustine's doctrine of grace over Augustine's doctrine of the church. Well, what is Augustine's doctrine of the church except what grew out of his conflict with the Donatus? So there's, again, no, no Reformed person has any investment in Augustine's ecclesiastical argumentation. So why would we somehow be stuck with Augustine's interpretation of James 2 or the categories thereof? This is, again, another one of those instances where you just have this wild-eyed 
ability to connect things that should never be connected are are not to be connected shouldn't be connected um that's just sort of how it how it works uh scott johnson likes your solos background that's 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 nice good i don't uh, what was it at the start oh yeah that is nice that is nice good okay all right now you just gotta get the five points in there and uh Fewer things like that, and eventually it'll have it'll be perfect. Anyway, um, people are, people were playing around with graphics uh, a week ago Tuesday and throwing stuff out there and doing new things with uh, there. there is this. There now that that's so much better. Doesn't that look? Doesn't that look better? Yeah. It does. It does. I just, I just got all the extraneous stuff out of the way, except for the faithful MacBook, which has been going for man. I don't even know it. This one's this one's old. It's getting. Is it really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, nope. Late 2013. Nope. Not as new as when I got at home, but even that one's getting older. So yeah, late late 2013. So. Yep, uh, we've done good. We've done good. Anyway, sorry, got distracted there for a second uh, once we started playing with the graphics. So I started listening to the video, and so before we listen to the video, I would like to uh, offer some uh, thoughts on James chapter 2. And I told everybody on uh, on the program, uh, on Twitter, that you need to grab your Bible, because we definitely want to take a look at James chapter 2. Yes, we have done James chapter 2 many times before, but this is an interesting uh, way of doing it uh, in the sense that we will be responding to what uh, Dr. Wilson has to say as well. So, uh, what are the issues in James chapter 2? Well, this will also be useful for you, obviously, if you are uh, involved in, uh, well, evangelism to almost anybody, but especially to Mormons, Mormons... uh, utilize James chapter 2. Most of the missionaries don't know that Paul didn't write James chapter 2. I've had that thrown at me many, many times. Well, remember what Paul said, faith out works is dead. No, that's not what Paul says. Anyway, um, but a lot of people have uh, a major misunderstanding of James chapter 2. I am not, however, going to go into the depth that I did in um, The God Who Justifies toward the end of the book. Uh, There is, I think it's a 34-page chapter. Is it 34 pages? Something like that. Uh, called James Attacks Empty Faith, that will walk through uh, the entirety of the section with you in the original languages and with lots and lots of commentaries cited and resources provided uh, for you to work through it uh, on an in-depth level. But a couple things. James may be one of our earliest books. There are some people who assume that it's written at least after maybe Galatians or something like that. It could be earlier. There is a tremendous amount of speculation concerning its relationship to Paul's writings. A lot of people assume uh, that James chapter 2 is a polemic against Paul. I think that is utterly bogus, both in its teaching uh, as well as its historical foundation. They have to assume 
that Acts is actually an apologetic for Paul that's not accurate, not historically valid. Um, there's all sorts of—believe me, again, you go into the most dangerous place for a Christian, the Christian bookstore, if there are any left, um, and or, or now the most dangerous place to the Christian is the Christian book section uh, at Amazon, which is about the only place you can get books anymore, uh, than CBD, but I mean, I wonder if they're going to survive all of this. Um, and you will find, sadly, any commentary written on James today um, will require you to read through pages of material on the assumed hypothetical conflict between Paul and James. And I think I provided some helpful information on that back on those background issues in the God who justifies because there there is no conflict between Paul and James when you both when you allow both of them to speak and you allow everything they wrote. Remember, most of that stuff you're going to be reading has a limited Pauline canon as well. In other words, it's going to be written by people who don't think Paul wrote everything that we believe Paul wrote and that everything historically has very good argument that Paul wrote. Anyway, so. Then the issue of the context, the audience um, to whom James is writing. Obviously, James is writing to Christians. He calls them brethren, but just as the writer of the Hebrews writes to a the gathered Christian body, that does not guarantee that everyone in the gathered body is, in fact, a Christian. That is plainly seen in Hebrews— and the issue is going to come up here in James chapter 2 as well. Um, and it's going to come up in some of the comments from the anti-lordship perspective. Um, if you're not aware of the fact, the anti-lordship guys have come up with a number of interpretations of James chapter 2 because it's just so obviously contrary to their own perspective. In fact, you'll see in the in the video, they, they call it the, the most difficult text of Scripture. Well, it's not, by any stretch of imagination. Verse 18 is extremely difficult only because it is so hard to punctuate, to figure out what's being said to whom and where to put quotation marks, because there were no quotation marks in Koine Greek in the ancient world. And so, but the actual overall intention of James is very clear. Um, and the problem is, what James presents to us is an empty faith versus a living faith, a dead faith versus a, a living faith. And he says that a dead faith cannot save. Their theology doesn't allow for that. Any faith saves. So they actually have to come up with an idea where you can have a dead faith that can become a living faith if you do enough works, which we will hear them actually say when we get to that point in, in playing stuff. So let's look at James 2. Let's run through it. Uh, as briefly as possible, but without skipping the important stuff. Um, what, you want this? You want... Uh, yeah. uh, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, and then you'll notice, according to Scripture, and then in, in the Greek you have the italicized, which are quotations from the Old Testament, you shall love... Uh, the neighbor, yours as yourself. You should love your neighbor as yourself. I love that because that comes from the holiness code. 
That's from Leviticus 19. Smack dab in the middle of Leviticus 18 and 20, uh, which people say aren't relevant anymore. But that is called the uh, Naman Basilikan, the royal law. Um, there's a lot of discussion as to exactly what that refers to. Uh, you are doing well. Uh, but if you show partiality, you are working sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole of the law, the entirety of the law, and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For the one saying, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, uh, but you uh, murder, that's interesting, you see that in New American Standard, they don't in the in they they well okay actually they don't in the Greek there. I skipped a line. If you do not commit adultery, but you murder, uh, you have become a transgressor of the law. Thus, speak, and thus act or do, as by the law of liberty you are going to be judged. So, what, what's interesting is the law of liberty that has just been quoted is straight out of the definitional portions of the Mosaic law. Not going to get into this today, but if you want to come up with a theory that basically says that the law that's written upon the heart is something other than the law that Jeremiah would have understood it to be, um, doesn't seem that James agreed because the examples that he gives are stayed straight out of the ten words. Um, and his point is that there is the, the the abiding moral validity of the revelation that God made of his own character in the law. It hasn't changed. In fact, if anything, it was demonstrated to be central in the cross, why does what's what's the whole point of the cross? The the forgiveness of sin is the fulfillment of the law. So uh, then he says, uh, verse thirteen: For judgment will be without mercy or merciless to the one not doing mercy, but mercy triumphs uh, over judgment. That sounds like uh, sort of a nomic statement, a, a statement that he's not just making up on the fly here. It's something that was generally understood uh, by the people to whom these words were written. So there is a moral standard to the Christian life. Uh, we don't just get to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Uh, there is a recognition of the continuing validity of God's moral standards. The Christian people are to be a people who are concerned about honoring and glorifying God in how they live. So then, James asks the question, what use is it? What, what benefit is there, my brethren, if I say I have faith? If someone says uh, that they have faith, 
but does not have works. Then here's an important section here. Man, I just wish I could change that color because it just makes it unreadable. Um, the faith, the faith that has just been referred to, that faith is not able to save him, is it? Or can that faith save him? There is a specific kind of faith that is identified here. And this is, this is where the anti-lordship people just, because of their theology, just can't stay with James. They, they have to come up with some... Uh, if, if you read some of these guys from the past, um, um, it, it's, it's amazing what they've tried to say and basically turn James 2 on its head. What is being said is fairly straightforward. A faith that has no works is not a saving faith. Now, the what's interesting is what we're going to hear is Wilson's going to lump together Catholics, Calvinists, and Arminians as if we all have the same understanding of this. And he may think that we do. Um, he may really think that we do. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a possibility. But the fact is, it's the Arminians and the, Cal- and the uh, Catholics that have the same understanding at this point. Because they both believe in synergism, and they both believe that, that faith is, while it may need grace in some way, shape, or form, grace is not in and of itself sufficient to bring about saving faith and to maintain saving faith. I've argued for a long time that the Reformed have the biblical balance here. To maintain sola fide requires that you recognize that fide is the result of divine action and divine power. Saving faith endures because saving faith comes from God. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in accordance with the purpose of God. So I can affirm sola fide and denounce any addition to faith as the mechanism of justification. And at the same time, agree with James that saving faith will always be accompanied by works. It's not the works that make it saving faith. The works are the evidence that it is saving faith and that it is the work of the Spirit of God. So those works cannot become a meritorious addition to the work of justification. They cannot be a future ground of some further justification, if there would be such a term that would have any meaning to it. They are, however, exactly what Paul said, that God ordained that we should walk in them. That's the continuation of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus unto good works, which God before ordained that we should walk in them. The only way that you can walk in good deeds is by faith. So faith is ordained of God. It, it, it has its origin and source in that new creation made by the Spirit of God. So, the Reformed have 
no problem with what James has to say, as long as you allow James to say it in the context in which he himself said it. And that is, there's a certain kind of faith that he says is dead, useless, worthless. And it's a faith that cannot demonstrate its reality in the only realm where human beings can see it. And that is in the realm of works. This is not a discussion of justification in Paul's context. This is not a discussion that indicates that James is seeing Paul as some kind of a interloper, someone who's gone off the reservation. No. He is talking about those people. And unfortunately, again, if you have had any experience in the Christian life, you have encountered many people, many people, who unfortunately fall into this category. They they name it, their life doesn't show it by any, by any means whatsoever. I mean, uh, I'm not talking about Christian perfectionism. I'm talking about the fact that you have spoken to people who said, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I, uh, I, I walked an aisle, shook the pastor's hand, got baptized. And uh, so, how often do you go to church? Well, I, don't, I don't go to church. I don't, I don't, I don't have any need for that. Um, do you read your Bible? No, no. I, you know, it, it, I just don't, I don't understand it. Um, what about that praying thing? No, no, I, you know, that, that seems just too pious for me. So do you think about the will of Christ for your life on any regular basis? No, no, but I, I, I sure do like the Miami Dolphins. Um, you know, whatever. Uh, we've all met these folks. They've been given a false hope, a false assurance. From the free grace perspective, they're Christians. They, they acknowledged the facts that Jesus rose from the dead uh, once, and then after that, hey, they, you know, some of these free grace guys will say, well, yeah, but now, now they need to be serious about, you know, glorifying God, but they're saved. And James would say, no, that is a dead faith. That is a worthless faith. That is a faith that has no value whatsoever. That's what's being spoken of in verse 14. Can that faith save him? And the answer is no. The expected answer is no. Uh, be, whether you use a may or an ooh will we'll tell you what the expected answer is. And, and the answer is no, that, that faith can't save him. Um, the problem is the anti-lordship position says, sure, any faith. Because they just simply will not acknowledge the reality that there are people who have made professions of faith that were not real. Because since they don't believe in total depravity, since they don't believe... Uh, so much of what the Bible teaches about the sovereignty of God and salvation and everything else, then that's where they come up with this. So, the example. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? So there's the illustration. Oh, I have faith, and that's, that's no different or better than saying, hey, 
if you leave your sister or brother without clothing and in need of daily food, and then just say to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. Those words are empty words. They were a waste of your vocal cords. They were a waste of oxygen. They were a waste of the risk of transmitting COVID-19. So um, they, it had no, there was no essence to it. There was no meaning to it. Uh, what use is that? And of course, please notice that the end of verse 16, what use is that is the exact same words that started verse 14. What use is it? I mean, the exact same words. So that shows you that what is being said is then summarized in verse 17. Thus, also, hey, pistis, the faith, which is the same hey, pistis of verse 14, the faith, that faith that has no works, if it does not have works, is necra, dead. Why? Being by itself. Being by itself. So what he's saying is that non-Nikra, living faith, is not by itself. Now, the Arminian and the Catholic are going to struggle at this point, which is why it's pretty much uh, Arminianism that spawned the anti-grace stuff, because they don't, the, the Catholic rejects the Reformation, obviously, because it was aimed against them. And the Arminian is inconsistent with the Reformation, because they actually agree with Rome on this. And so, why? Because they don't see faith as the gift of God, and they don't see total depravity, and they don't see the radical nature of regeneration, and the, the centrality and necessity of grace to all of that. So, faith that has no works is a non-existent faith. It's a dead faith. It's a faith that has no reality. Because biblically, not only is faith the gift of God, Ephesians chapter 2, and I didn't have to get that from Augustine. He didn't come up with it. Um, many people in the early church before him actually identified faith as the thing not the entirety of the clause, which I think it is from this context of the Greek. Um, but not only is it the gift of God, but it is the natural accompaniment of what regeneration and being made a new creature in Christ is going to be all about. So the Reformed understanding of salvation is holistic. It, it, it recognizes everything God does in the, in the entirety of the work in one's life. So, even so, faith, but has no works, is dead, being by itself. Then verse 18. Now, verse 18, uh, let's, um, let's uh, bring this up here, and let me, let me show you something here. Verse 18 is tough. Look at the number of, of variants here. We've got one here, one here, one here, one here. Uh, and one at the end of the verse. Now, when you see that many variants, that normally indicates that the scribes were struggling to understand exactly what was being communicated. 
And the reason is this. This is the New American Standard. New American Standard says, but someone may well say, quote, you have faith and I have works, semicolon. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works, end quote. Now, so the NASB 95 edition puts the entirety of the quotation in as one. Now, I would suggest, as others have suggested, but some may well say, quote, you have faith and I have works, period, end quote. James continues to say, show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. I think that makes much more sense. Because when you have this phrase here, al eraitis, a certain one will say, that's, that you, you get that from Paul, too. Uh, okay, now we're going to have an objection. Now we're going to have an objection, and um, so you, there's, the, the point is that there are numerous translations that punctuate verse 18 in different ways, and the variants demonstrate that the scribes are struggling to understand where that punctuation logically would be going. Not that they were inserting punctuation. I didn't have punctuation to insert in the technical sense that we would utilize it. Um, but I think that despite the difficulties of the verse, this term right here, daixan, daixan, this term is key. Show me your faith. Show me your faith. You show me your faith apart from works, I will show my faith by my works. So the point is, this is, this is written to, to people in Missouri, um, show me state. Is that, is that show me state? Okay, I think so. Anyway, show me state. Demonstrate. Show in, because your words are just words. Your words are your lips moving. And as we saw in the preceding verses, you can say to someone, be warmed and be filled. But if you don't fill the stomach, they're empty words. They don't have any meaning. And so this is James's point. Show me. Words are empty. Words do not keep the unity of the church. Words do not avail. Show me. Then he says, you believe that God is one, you do well, the demons also believe and shudder. So, you believe God is one. Well, that's true. As he says, kalos poiais, you do well. But even the demons believe that, and they are shuddering at the reality of that. So the point is, they can have a positive and even orthodox confession of faith. They can recognize a fact. God is one. And of course, it's a part of the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Hear Israel, the Lord our God is one. He's one God, one Lord. Wow, that's, that's what separated them from all the pagans. But even the demons 
can have an orthodox understanding of that reality. Instead, but are you willing to know, oh, empty man or foolish fellow, foolish man, that faith, apart from works, is useless. Now, there is a textual variant here. It's interesting. Uh, You have arge, which means useless. You've got kene in P74, which is empty. And then nekra is a wide, well, that's actually the the, uh, Byzantine reading. Um, and probably, therefore, the, the majority reading, is dead. So, dead, empty, and useless. Well, there's one instance where all your textual variants just basically fill out the idea. <laughs> They're pretty much saying the same thing. Uh, oh, foolish fellow, and some would say that maybe the Kene here resulted in the reading down here in P74, but uh, or others would say, hey, that's it's parallel. But the point is, are you willing to know, are you willing to recognize, oh foolish fellow, that the faith, going back to verse 14, the faith that is said, the faith that is just spoken, the faith that cannot do daixan, it cannot show itself, that faith, apart from works, is useless. And it's in that context, then, that he brings up the example of Abraham. And was not our father Abraham justified ex ergon? This, of course, is the big conflict with the Roman Catholics, who will say, see, here it is. Here's justification by faith. The problem is, that Abraham had been justified before this by faith rather than by works. And if you understand this justification as being before God rather than uh, the dikson that is being demonstrated, showing to Isaac and then through Isaac to the rest of the world the reality of Abraham's faith, then you have an insuperable contradiction within Scripture, which a lot, that's what a lot of people do. But that would also mean that James just changed the entirety of his focus from you show me to you show God. He didn't change the entirety of his focus. It's still on the demonstration amongst men, not before God. Um, so you see in verse 22 that faith, sunergai, uh, don't, don't freak out too much there, uh, yeah, synergai, that's from which we get synergism. Different context, though. That So you see that faith working together tois ergois out too, with his works. And as a result of those works, that faith was made complete. So it's a real faith. It's demonstrated to be true faith. And the scripture was fulfilled, which said, Abraham believed God and was reckoned him as righteous as he was called the friend of God. So now you have the quotation of Genesis 15, 6. His point is, you see, yes, Abraham is justified before God in Genesis 15, but he demonstrates the abiding validity of that faith in Genesis 22. 
and that needs to be it's you know you can claim the spoken faith all you want but abraham lived years afterwards and if he had not lived consistently with what he said where he said he believed god uh that would bring his words into um Question. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Obviously, James 2.24. The key text, it's almost never the key text within Roman Catholic apologetics. Sometimes Mormons will bring it up as well. But the reality is that once we see what this justification is about and the context in which it's found, very, very rarely is it discussed starting back at verse 10, verse 14, some way of getting the, the meaningful context to be able to flow, follow the flow of the argument. Rahab is brought up, justified by works, received the messenger, sent them out by another way. And then you have this final statement, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Excellent summary. So if you have a words only faith that cannot demonstrate its existence. It has no more value than a dead corpse. Now, what we're going to hear is the free grace guys, the non-repentance anti-lordship guys, don't mind if you are a corpse, because that corpse can do more good works in the future. Just need to be encouraged to do it, get revved up. Sort of like maybe Paula White will come along and get you all excited. Anyway, sorry about that. Ah, that's still hard to watch. It really is. Okay, so let's get to a couple sections of this video uh, from the Grace Cafe. Uh, let's start off, however, with this description. Uh, listen, listen to this. Cool here. Uh, you are probably, uh, well, probably considered today the foremost expert on Augustine. Uh, it has nothing to do with James, too. Um, but if this is an advertisement for a seminary, okay, I guess I can get that, but I'm sorry. I don't know of anyone outside of a very small group of provisionists who thinks Ken Wilson is the expert on Augustine. In fact, most of the people who really are experts on Augustine have spent their entire lives working on Augustine. And Ken Wilson himself said in the interview that he started his doctoral work without a clue as to what the early church fathers believed. Um, no. Sorry, we've already demonstrated so many holes in the argumentation, citations, and dissertation that it's not funny. But the point is, I see zero evidence that the world is knocking on Ken Wilson's door and saying, would you please teach us about Augustine? Um, that's, that's just, um, that's just wild. Uh, it, it truly is. Now, then we had, uh, this, uh, this quick statement. Thanks, Mark. Happy to be here. Um, you just shared with me something right before we went on air, and that is that you've got an, uh, an article, um, on basically, and let me put it into layman's terms because I can't even get the entire title of this article in it's being published in the journal of biblical literature it's on james 2 specifically james 2 verses 18 through 20 and it's the view of how 
Augustine's approach to that passage is what colors our thinking today about this difficult passage. Did I put that correctly? Is that, did I couch that well? <laughs> yeah, exactly right, Mark. So everything we understand about James 2, how we read it, the context, what good works are, what dead faith is, all those things come right out of Augustine. And uh, I show how his... Uh, now... I really look forward to this. By the way, I, I just I was wondering, sitting here listening to it going so slowly, and I uh, this is um, a, a program I've used before, and they keep improving it, which I appreciate. Um, and it's now almost up to the level of audio note taker, but for video, which is really cool. Um, and I just found that it has a, a a variable speed playback. I'm not sure that the lips will necessarily stay synced with the audio, but for our purposes. This is pretty cool. By the way, for those of you looking for things like this, called Note Studio, uh, and uh, it it really works well. I can sit here and as soon as I type something, it time indexes what I type to where it is in the video, and then I select a certain tool, and when I click on the time, it takes me to that spot. Uh, that's that's what you need. That, that really is what you need. So uh, Note Studio, thank you very much. Continue to do a great job with that program, and I'll help to. You know, if that's something you need to do, it's something that's useful. Anyway, um, so I'm looking forward to this SBL article. I really am. Because um, I really want to see how the exegesis I offered in The God Who Justifies was actually determined by someone I never read. Now, I get it. The people I did read, maybe they were just, all their categories were determined by Augustine. I get the argument. Um, I just think it's completely bogus. It completely, it, it assumes that these guys and these guys only have gone to the Bible for just what the Bible says. They are the ones without traditions. They are the ones without influences. And then when we trace stuff back to Pelagius, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> but but they, 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 Ken Wilson, MD, hand therapist, hand doctor, uh, is the first one to have recognized, and he's going to say this. He's going. I'm. I'm not putting these words in. He's going to say this. To have recognized um, the characteristics of the Greek language that would tell us what James two is all about. No, no one else. All those thousands of pages that have been written on James chapter two, all just a mess because of Augustine. Augustine got us all wrong about that. Uh, so, so there you go. Uh, now, I'm not sure who Mark Ray is. I assume he's probably in leadership uh, at uh, Grace Theological Seminary, Grace School of Theology, uh, which is in the background there. But let's. Uh, uh, he says something here that caught my attention, and I wanted to comment on it. Um, if you look at the book 15 times, uh, he uses the term brothers. Uh, and beloved, actually, it's in the very next section. Sorry, but let's listen to this part too. Others, so it is a Christian audience, uh, and if you try to say this is a mixed audience between Christians and non-Christians, that's really an anachronistic uh, mindset. Now, now, so if someone addresses their audience as brothers, then what that means is they could never ever have the idea that there might be unbelievers in the congregation. Apply that to Hebrews. Now, maybe he, he would argue that there's something different about Hebrews, but the, the reality is 
that when you stand, well, again, here, <laughs> see, for all the rest of us, other than this group, when you stand in front of a congregation and you say, brothers and sisters, what an awesome opportunity to be with you here this day. We've come together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, to open his word, to be obedient to him, to glorify him in all things. And you say, brothers and sisters, that what that means is you are guaranteeing that every person in front of you is a Christian? No, we, we recognize that we address the group in hope and in faith, but we also recognize that when Peter addressed the church in Jerusalem and called them brothers and sisters, Ananias and Sapphira were sitting amongst them. Um, how many times, how many times did Paul address believers in the various cities and then later have to name names of people who had apostatized, who had gone out? Had he called them brother or sister? You bet he had. You bet he had. Was he lying? For some of these guys, their theology would say they, there's, there, there's no such thing as apostasy. Uh, there's, 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 there's no one who goes back to the world. Uh, there's, there's no one who ever makes an empty claim of faith. Uh, as, as long as you say the words, you're in. Boom. You got your ticket punch going to heaven. You can go become a Buddhist. Doesn't matter. Uh, you'll always be a true, a, a true believer. Um, that's really the end result of this kind of thinking. And it's a very, very dangerous thinking. Uh, so the idea here is, hey, if you, if you call everybody brothers, that means you're guaranteeing everybody is. Well, that does not follow in, in almost anything. Here's the uh, section I was talking about with Mark Ray. So that's where he's headed in this book. Well, and that makes sense because he's calling them brothers. These would be ones Correct. who are already believers. So to then back up and, and address salvation would be, uh, it, it would make no sense in the letter to address salvation if they already have it. Um, if you read Romans recently, <laughs> written to the church at Rome, uh, to the saints at Rome, and the whole thing's about what they already have. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no. Uh, it's hard to believe that someone in, in theological education actually just sat in front of a webcam and said, well, you're not going to talk to believers about salvation because they already have salvation. I, I think what they may be struggling... Look, this is, this is why this text for them is this text for the anti-lordship guys is Jesus's prayers for the oneness people. They don't have a meaningful explanation. They ha it just, it just, there's no way around it. It's, it's done. It, they can't do it. So, uh, I think what he's trying to say is, and there's, there's an element of truth here. James is not writing about soteriology in the sense of the initial uh, understanding of what justification is or any of those things. He's writing wisdom literature to the church, very much based in, for example, numerous people have pointed out the parallels to the Sermon on the Mount and, and, and things like that. Extremely practical, in-your-face, great preaching, but it is for the congregation, and it is to 
leave no stone unturned uh, in rooting out hypocrisy and partiality and all the rest of that type of stuff. But you don't do that without a common commitment to the same gospel. It's already there. That's, that's, rather, that's rather important. Okay. Here we go. Dive in then uh, to chapter two. We've got audience. We've got context. What is the issue, the main issue, that makes this such a difficult passage? Well, it's Augustine, to be, to be blunt, because we, <laughs> we read it we read it through his eyes. Um, and, and I'll just... I, I haven't gotten to it yet. We will. Uh, I, I want to spread it out enough to where everybody's just not getting sick and tired of it. But uh, you read the conclusion. The conclu- this is, for a man who claims to be the, the greatest living expert on Augustine, he really detests Augustine. Um, his intention is to warn us against Augustine. He's, Augustine's a bad man. Augustine's a heretic. Augustine taught false things. Augustine brought false teachings into the Christian faith. Augustine was a bad, 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 bad man. You read the conclusion. There's, there's numbered lists of all the bad characteristics, the bad stuff about Augustine. And the reality is, in James 2, this is a textual issue. This is very much based in how you understand what the gospel is. And it's not about Augustine. I, I've never seen a standalone work on James 2 by Augustine. I don't think one exists. Um, and I've, I don't recall... But in the thousands of pages that I read as background for the chapter in The God Who Justifies on this subject, on James 2, I don't remember Augustine. That was a long time ago, so maybe I missed something. But I don't remember anyone basing anything on Augustine. So uh, to, to give to Augustine the kind of position that Wilson seems to want to give to him and then claim to be grace living expert on subject tells you a lot now it is interesting that um prior to um the program i I just quickly noted uh that john chrysostom who is cited as a counter witness to augustine on certain issues by wilson said in regards to James chapter 2, even if somebody believes rightly in the Father and the Son, as well as in the Holy Spirit, if he does not lead the right kind of life, his faith will not benefit him all, at all as far as his salvation is concerned. For although Jesus says, this is eternal life to know you, the only true God, we must not think that merely uttering the words is enough to save us, for our life and behavior must be pure as well. Now, I would not put it the way that Chrysostom did, in light of what happened after Chrysostom and the um, continuing development of sacramentalism and everything that came along with that. But he is saying we must not think that merely uttering the words. Why isn't this Chrysostom's fault? Why, why, not, why not look at him? Uh, he, he's a contemporary with Augustine. Was he somehow... Um, 
contaminated. Preface that quickly by saying... Uh, by Augustine? I didn't mean to do that. I just... Something tapped there. Um, hmm. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, let's get the next section here. We are going to get this done eventually. Does that make sense? I think Does my question make sense? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. so, so if you go to 212... Um, and start there. Most people start with 14. Well, wait a minute. It, 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 the whole thing, 14 through 26, it's a sandwich. If you look at 212 and 13, and then you look at 3.1, you find the context. So speak and so do is those who will be judged by the law of liberty. So these are Christians being judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He's clearly talking about judgment <laughs> and it's judgment of the christian we believe that's at the bema christ's judgment seat because we're all right. going to stand there to be judged for the works we've done whether good or bad according to paul in second corinthians 5 10. so you look at 3 1 what does 3 1 say well my brethren let not many of you become teachers why knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment interesting. so interestingly james includes himself now if the apostle didn't make it to heaven we're all in trouble you know, and so I don't I don't think that's the context. The context yeah. is him as a Christian standing before God to be judged by his works, as well as all Christians. So if you understand that context and it's about Christian judgment, not whether you're going to heaven or hell, all of a sudden it opens up the passage and you start getting where what James is really trying to say. Yeah. So here is the the, the entire theory um, that is being put forth is that uh, what James chapter 2 is actually talking about is judgment of works before the Bema seat, the mercy seat of Christ, referred to by Paul elsewhere. Um, and that this is not a discussion of a difference between um, a said faith and a actual living faith. They have to do this because, again, their theology all faith is saving faith. If there is any faith at all, it's saving faith. This is what they think sola fide is. That's never what the Reformers defined as sola fide, of course. Uh, but that's what they think sola fide is. And by the way, there was possibly one Reformed guy that went way out into the ozone layer and said some similar things once, but I won't get into that right now. It's highly inconsistent. Anyway, uh, and so this is all just about judgment of works. Um, not about the actual nature of faith, which, of course, as we just walked through James 2, that's what we saw it was actually about. There's no reference here to the Bema seat. There's nothing like that. Um, and this is talking about being able to differentiate between people who have... And by the way, the showing, Dykeson, in 2.18, is in this life. It's not, it's not eschatological. It's not down the road. Uh, it's in this life. It's right now. Um, and that's... That's very, very key to the, whole, to the whole issue. But this is the theory. The theory is we can make all this go away by saying that all that's being discussed here is the eventual judgment of works, which is interesting because that's the, the works are never said to be judged in James chapter 2. Not only is the Bema seat not there, but there's nothing about the judgment of works. It's, it's us. It's the statement of faith. Now, see, Paul does talk about the testing of works and motivations elsewhere, you know, to the Corinthians chapter 3, but he doesn't, 
this is, that's not what's being discussed here. So you, you jump to a different context, import that in here, and see, oh, this isn't really talking about dead faith, even though that's repeated more than once. Um, it's, not, it's not really what about. It's actually, we're talking about something completely different. Let's go to the next one right here. Define for me dead faith. Okay. So there are two views on that. Uh, well, there are probably more, but two basic views. One is that dead faith means false faith. That comes from Augustine. Uh, if you look at the word necros, uh, I, I would love to see how this comes from Augustine, because I just quoted Chrysostom, and I think Chrysostom expressed exactly that concept, didn't he? Didn't he? Didn't he say, "We must not think that merely uttering the words is enough to save us"? Isn't, isn't that what he's talking about? Something tells me I could probably find some stuff before that uh, too. So. You know, all bad stuff evidently comes from Augustine. <laughs> Everything was great before then. Everything was wonderful. And if you actually read much, if you read the Shepherd of Hermas, if you read Epistle Barnabas, you realize things were not all that good from the start, depending on who you were reading. Um, but yeah, it's, it's all Augustine's fault. And I, I would love to know. I, I'm looking forward to this article. Uh-oh, the verb anywhere in the New Testament, or even the Old Testament, if you go back in the Septuagint, you can't find it means false. Every time it means dead. Right. Uh, if, if you look at... This is, a, this, this is a point that doesn't mean anything. Um, a, in the context of James chapter 2, someone is saying, I have faith. James says, it's a dead faith without works. Therefore, can that faith save him? And his answer is no. It can't. Now, that's against their theology. So now they're off beating a dead horse in the field about what does it mean? False faith. It means dead faith. Well, dead faith can't save either. And the only reason you're using false is over against, in verse 18, a true faith that can demonstrate its reality by how it lives in this life. So false is not meant as a substitute for dead. It's just in the contrast of a living. So if you want to use living and dead, true and false are simply the same categories. You're not, you're not proving anything. Uh, Abraham, when it talks about his body being dead or Sarah's womb being dead, it wasn't actually false. He, he didn't have, and I do this to my students, I say, the faults in Christ will rise first. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, I, <laughs> what's wrong? I, if that's what he does to his students, I... I feel sorry for his students. Um, I hope that the students can can see. Did you just cough again? I'm, I'm allergies. Oh sure. Don't you realize there are no allergies anymore? There's no flu. There's no pneumonia. All diseases have been cured by COVID nineteen. Yeah, that, that's true. You don't die of anything other than that now. It it cured everything. That's what everybody dies of now. Is so if 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 you you don't have allergies, that's just early onset COVID. <laughs> it's true. I mean, look at the numbers. Everybody's dying of COVID now. So nobody dies of anything else. Just, that's why we're all running around virtue signaling. Uh, okay, all right. I'm sorry. I. <laughs> it's not my fault. He coughed. I didn't make him cough. I didn't do that. For this picture. So it means <laughs> it means. If you go to Abraham and Sarah, it means it's useless. I mean, it's, it's not working properly. And that's much different than false. Now, 
it's not working properly is not the same thing as dead. I mean, are you are we are we seriously going to suggest that if you look at a corpse that a, an appropriate observation is it's not working properly. No, it's dead. There's a difference. And that's the difference that this group denies. This group is literally going to say, you don't want to have a dead faith? Then pump it up. Get it work. Do good works. I've told the story many times before. I was department fellow in anatomy and physiology under Dr. James Witherspoon at Grand Canyon University. I just saw an article. I, I don't know how I tracked this. Oh, I was looking for something about somebody else and came across this article. And there was, there was Dr. Witherspoon. I was so excited to see him again. Wonderful guy. Spent a lot of time with him. He was writing one of his textbooks at a time, and he hired me to do proofreading with him. And so it was, it was a lot of fun. But I was a department fellow in anatomy and physiology. So I, I demonstrated the cadavers. We, we got cadavers in the spring of, of 1985. I graduated in 85. So that was the time when I was his department fellow. And so we had cold, not cold storage cadavers, chemical storage cadavers. We had something called phenol. Still can smell it to this day. And I would do the Quincy thing. And nobody in this audience hardly anymore remembers the Quincy thing. You have to be really old to remember the Quincy thing. But the Quincy thing, the Quincy, Quincy was the medical examiner in L.A. It was a TV program about him. What was that, Jack Klugman? Jack Klugman pay, played Quincy. And he would pull the sheet back from these dead bodies, and these, these co- young cops and like that would all just pass out from what he was doing. Well, I got to do that for real, with, main, mainly with high school students. Um, never lost one, but I had a few that ended up on the other side of the room. Um, but I would demonstrate the cadavers. And I've told the story many times that uh, with, uh, with Willie, and those are their real names, Willie and Clara, uh, with Willie, you could literally take, we had cut his ribs so you could take his chest off to see, you know, the lungs, the heart. By the way, Willie smoked his entire life. Anywhere you cut in his lungs was pitch black. And you could point to the spot on his heart where he blew up and died. Uh, just... Keep that in mind uh, when you're thinking about that kind of stuff. Anyway, um, here's the point. I could do anything I wanted to that cadaver, and I could not pump it up. It ain't getting off that, that slab ever again. It's dead. And dead bodies don't pump themselves up with good works. Not possible. Not possible. But that's what you're going to get. Out of, uh, out of these guys. It's, uh, it's pretty amazing. Uh, so not working properly. Isn't that great? There you go. Uh, just a couple more quotes here. We'll, we'll get through this. And visual? Oh, absolutely, Mark. Because if you look at the last verse of that chapter, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Uh, the works are what actually energize our faith. It gets us going again. Um, right. I, I Catch that? It, to- it, it gets us going again. You can, you can get a dead faith going again. So it's not dead. See, see these guys do, cannot deal with James 2. They always have to f- engage in face-planting eisegesis. Face-planting eisegesis to try to get around James chapter 2. 
um, because it doesn't teach what they teach. So you need works to get it going again. That sounds like a once-living faith that's still alive, and you just need to resuscitate it in some way. But it's dead. That's the whole point. It's dead. And in your fire analogy, I compare it to, I mean, a medical doctor, a corpses. I mean, let's, let's look at this. If you're walking along and you find a dead body there, I mean, some, you see a corpse, you don't think, oh, this is a false body. <laughs> uh, it's, it used to yeah. be alive. I mean, you know, they, this isn't a fake body. It was alive, and now it's dead. So with that analogy, I think it's a little graphic, but yeah, bear with me. That, that's what he's trying to say. Yes, your faith has to be energized by works. It needs to come yes. alive, just as you said with the fire. Your faith has to be energized by works. It has to come alive. Right. Which means it's not a dead faith. That's the whole point. That's what makes faith real faith. Living faith. And if those works are never there, it's dead faith and cannot save you, according to James 2.14. Right? And see, if you're a Calvinist, you're sitting there going, yeah, to all of that. Unless you're a Calvinist that's lost track of the Reformation and everything that's come afterwards. And thinks that you can't talk about. It. Well, there are there are Calvinists think. Oh yeah, there's Calvinists think along those lines. Definitely, uh, no no two ways about it. There are a lot of Calvinists. There there are Calvinists who have become uh, scared of James too, not recognizing that as long as you recognize the origin of regeneration and faith, man, the New Testament is a wonderfully balanced revelation from God. It really is. So thankful for it. So thankful for it. And nowhere in it does James make the impression that if you don't do works, you don't have faith. Did you see that? Did you hear that? Nowhere does James say, give the impression that if you don't do works, you don't have faith. What are you reading? That's exactly what he's saying. That's the central point. That's the central point. Let, let me. Let, I, I, you've got to hear that again. You've got to hear that again. It, it energized by works. It needs to come yes. alive, just as you said with the fire. And nowhere in it does James make the impression that if you don't do works, you don't have faith. He's and see what Wilson's doing. Right. Yeah. He. he okay. Rich has corrected me. Thank you very much, Rich. I pre- I'm so thankful that you're still with us, despite dying of COVID in there. Um, uh, <laughs> yes, I did. He he said he what 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 he said he doesn't he said he doesn't give the impression. He actually stated it straight up front. He didn't leave it to impressions. He actually said it. If you don't have works, you don't have faith. He said it straight out. And these guys sitting there going, yeah, I never, it never said that. <laughs> never said that. And you're just left going, okay, all right. Uh, this is extremely useful for the demonstration of how powerful tradition is. It may be a new tradition. It may be a tradition that has no foundation in history or anything like that. Um, but 
it's a it's a strong 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 tradition. It really really is. Uh, isn't that amazing? Okay, two more quotes. Two more quotes. Back on this again, so we understand that issue. Yep. Yep. So the the classic view: Catholics, Calvinists, Arminians. You keep going. Works demonstrate true faith. <laughs> works demonstrate true faith. You don't have works; you have false faith. So that's the Augustinian view. So you seeing you seeing how this is working now. So Catholics, Calvinists, Arminians. You throw them all together. Wilson has demonstrated in interviews and published works an ability to cross categories when it comes to theological connectivity in the most muddled fashion of almost anyone I've ever encountered so far. Okay? Um, In my experience, this normally comes from people who have been pressed into positions they were not prepared to take. That's been my experience in my life. Be as it may, uh, as I pointed out, Catholics and Arminians, being synergists, have different questions to deal with in this text than the Calvinists do. I think we have a very strong and consistent interpretation to offer in this text. But that's the Augustinian view. So just think about that for a second. The Catholics, with all their uh, sacramentalism, the Arminians, without the sacramentalism, but was still with the emphasis upon a, an autonomous will, um, and then the Calvinists, who don't have either one in those senses. Calvinists have a higher liturgy and a certainly higher view of sacraments, but not sacramentology like Rome has. Seven sacraments, means of grace in the sense of ex opera, operato, and all the rest of that. You throw them all together and say that's the Augustinian view. But keep in mind what's interesting here. The Augustinian view that is derived from the Donatist period, not the Pelagian period. So again, I'm really looking forward to this article. I'm not sure that Dr. Wilson is looking forward to my looking forward to this article, but I am, I am looking forward to, to the article. It should be quite interesting. Last one. God. Why is this a viewpoint that has been held so tightly by so many groups? Uh, and certainly, can there have been scholars down through the ages that could have seen something as simple as verses 12 and 13 in, in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 1? Oh, it's so simple. No one else has ever read verses 12 and 13. No one else has ever read chapter 3, verse 1, even though when I was in Bible college, I had to diagram all these sentences and connect them together. But hey, no one is, no one before the great Dr. Wilson has ever seen these things. No, we are the, it has been up to us, the free gracers, uh, to see what no one else has ever, ever seen. It gets scary. It really gets scary when you, when you start hearing that. Uh, it, it, that, that's, that, that's not a good thing. As the, the bookends to this argument, why has this been held for so long? That's a great question, and, and I point out that I think it's simply because the prestige of Augustine and habit. Uh, people have, have missed. I, I talk about in the chapter the whole idea of... The- now, now, this is interesting. This is interesting. Catch this, because I know it's the last quote, so it's easy to start tuning out and getting ready for something else. But listen, listen to what he says here. Demons believe and tremble is not spoken by James. It's spoken by the 
imaginary objector, the interlocutor. Uh, we have just taken that, and the, the Greek diatribe, there's a very specific way you, you're supposed to read this in Greek, and there are markers telling you who starts and who stops, and it's all messed up. Scholars know the diatribe, but this theology is so ingrained, they can't bring themselves to admit, oh, wait a minute, it's the objector who says, the demons believe and tremble. Not now, I, again, I can't wait for this, because, as I said, the textual variance in 2.18, extremely important. I want to see what he thinks this is, because I've read a lot of scholarship on James chapter 2. I'd like, I'm going to be interested in seeing how widely he's read in that same scholarship, but I'm really looking forward to seeing what kind of argumentation he's going to be able to provide, especially in light of... Um, in fact, what I'll be really interested in, I just, just thought of this, is um, I want to look at 218 in the ECM because that's, that is out. The CBGM data is available. So I will definitely be pulling that in uh, once this article is, uh, is available. Um, that'll be interesting. The author of James. So wow. there it goes. Uh, wow. I point that out. And, they, and, and the editors agreed. They said... We don't know how we missed this. this is so did you catch that? This is about his article. He says, and the editors agreed, we don't know how we missed that. Now remember, in the interview, this is the guy saying, yeah, nobody else has ever read Augustine in chronological order. I think he actually thinks, I think he actually believes this. That's, that's what's frightening. Because people have done that for a long time. Um, that's just, that's just absurd to think that you're the first one to have ever done this. Um, but still, the other, oh, wow, we've never seen that. You're the most brilliant scholar to walk the planet. <clears throat> okay, okay. He really honestly thinks that he has discovered something that no one else has ever seen. So I'm looking forward to this article. Uh, this is going to be this, this, you know, when when you get when you find something that no one else has ever ever known before. That's a that's that's important. That's good. So yeah, there you go. Yeah, hopefully, walking through James two has been helpful in understanding what it's actually about, um, and in responding to people's abuse of it. But how is this relevant to everything else we've been doing? Well, I think it gives you some of the mindset that Dr. Wilson's bringing into his studies. And there is a strong, strong commitment to a very anthropocentric perspective that is, as I was reading last week, I would go, Augustine plays this game. Augustine redefines it. There's this constant negativity, this constant judgment in the language that is used. Where is that coming from? And why does he interpret Augustine the way that it is? Why did he take, why did he take Omira and Omira's statement, which is about one thing, and attribute it to Augustine? That Augustine could believe that it was just a small step from being a Manichaean to being a Christian. When that's not what Omira was saying. That's not what Augustine would say. That's not a fair reading of Augustine. Why then did he say it? Because he has a massive, not just bias, prejudice, anti-Augustinian prejudice. 
and it's seen here in the eisegesis of James 2. Um, and something tells me, maybe I'll predict, possibly, the article is going to contain the same type of stuff. What do you think? Maybe? Yeah, probably so. Probably so. All right. Well, that's, like I said, I was literally getting ready. It was 1140. It's now 339. So it was it was four hours ago that I got the Facebook messages from the guys that are they're working on a book in response to Wilson. I'm encouraging them to do it. They've been doing a lot of work. Um, and I got that Facebook message, and I'm like, I don't remember that. Oh, well, here's a video. And thanks to Note Studio uh, and the takeout service at my favorite little restaurant, uh, which is hard to get to because they're repaving 35th Avenue, which I'm very glad they're doing. But getting in and out is tough right now. Oh, I know, I know, I know. But they just figure, hey, we, we, let's get this done now where there's no traffic. Uh, that, that's cool. No, no worries. Um, I, I can't complain. 35th has been a cow path for quite some time. Anyway, you all don't care about that. I'm sorry. I'm, yeah, Rich and I are just talking. We can go ahead and wrap this up. Um, I'm not, I think we're supposed to see you tomorrow, maybe. But we'll let you know. Till then, God bless.